You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. So back then, um, Chris, Christopher was uh, doing a lot of drugs, as, as I mentioned, most of us were. But he, he was so <laughs> shit-faced at one point. First of all, it was this whole chase driving movie, and we could never have him in a car, actually, with the car running because it was too dangerous. So all the scenes with him driving were either pushing the car, towing the car, thinking that the car's moving. It was hilarious. But so anyway, so at the end, he gets shot. He's walking through Times Square, and it's like he's covered in blood, and he was so fucked up that he couldn't walk. I, I know he's not like this anymore, so yeah. I'm well, a little guilty. Chris telling. Wa- Christopher Walken walking. So I had to hold him and walk with him, but it was so crowded that no one could see that I was holding him. So I, was oh, just, oh my. I had my arm, my head down. I was just holding him with my arm and just walking, and he was just like weaving his way through Times Square. And it That's worked. Amazing. It totally works. <laughs> Hey, welcome to another episode of 2020. Thank you for continuing to come here. We hope that you have subscribed. And that's how you found out about this episode and all future episodes and past episodes. Please go check all those out. Um, I'm here, as always, with my co-host, Siobhan Cronin. Hi, everyone. And Benny Goodman. Well, hi. Hi, uh, <laughs> my name is Corey Peza, and uh, we are going to get into our second hour with the incredible Drew Ann Rosenberg, uh, incredibly uh, illustrious career in the filmmaking industry. She talks about, you know, having to literally carry people like Christopher Walken. You can hear it, but like carry him. So when you think you're seeing a scene, <laughs> it's not the same anymore. Listen. Yeah, getting getting to see real, the real behind the scenes of some some major movie productions and how uh, the unique things and experiences that come up. There with was that. so much blow in the '80s. <laughs> Steve Stevens taught us that, but man, Drew really fucking hammered it home. But it's amazing. She's such a down to earth person. You know, yes. for someone that works in Hollywood, not high strung at all. Like just very chill. She talks about her yoga, like you know, her lifestyle. I mean, just. And that aside, just so many different angles of cool experiences that she's had with some of the major names in Hollywood that you've casual about like Woody Allen and George A. Romero and freaking everybody that's literally ever mattered in all the best films that she's a part of. And there's multiple ones. And you're our resident encyclopedia. You have such a great memory. (laughs) I watch IMDb like it's a show. Well, you should definitely check out Drew Ann Rosenberg's IMDb and just be amazed at how many productions she's been involved in. And while you're doing that, subscribe and like 2020-D.com. People ask, like, how do you get onto this show? How do you listen to it? You go to 2020-D.com because everything's there from Amazon to Spotify to whatever fucking thing you're allegiant to. It's all okay, there. Okay, Ben, calm yeah, down. You can also buy a t-shirt with our faces on it, which is super weird. But if you guys want to do it, I will support that decision. And if you're new here, go back and listen to part one with Duran Rosenberg. Here we have part two, but we've got a, you know, a whole roster of incredible guests from previous episodes, so check it out. All right, ladies and gentlemen, all of the people who stuck around to keep listening to, the, to listening to this podcast, um, we're back for another edition of 2020. I'm Siobhan Cronin. I'm here with my good friends and cohorts, as Benny likes to say. I've got Benny Goodman. Hey. <laughs> and you criticize me for using hey. And Corey Peza. I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> no, I'm actually a horse and a cow simultaneously. Right. I've reached the highest level of Taoism. <laughs> Congratulations. And we're back for part two with this incredible guest. We've had a lot of fun talking to her in part one, so go check it out if you haven't yet. We have Drew Ann Rosenberg, who has some incredible stories. (laughs) Welcome back. Thanks for sticking around to talk to us more. Well, happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. We're so thankful that you have an awesome internet connection because even though you have an (laughs) unbelievable house with a beautiful view right behind you, not that you're showboating or anything, you're amazing (laughs) success. So for those that don't know, maybe you're just tuning in now. But Drew Ann Rosenberg is the assistant director to so many incredible... She's a producer. She's a singer. She's a a writer. Multi-talented. But as far as what's, what's bringing home the bacon, unless you're a Jew and then you're keeping kosher and it's trafe... It's the fact that she's 
an assistant director on all these amazing films like L.A. Confidential. We were talked about Philadelphia. She now is working with Grey's Anatomy, has worked on Shameless, The L Word. I mean, literally the Ghostbusters. Just so you know, Drew, on my wall, I have a full-blown, because it's you can go on to Google, in Google Vigo, the Carpathian. You can get a 5770 by like 6,000 DPI <laughs> picture from the movie Ghostbusters 2. Of Vigo, the destroyer, destroyer, Vigo, the Carpathian, and I printed it out so that every time I work out in my house, I get to watch Vigo. It's <laughs> <laughs> good motivation. It's what good was it like it. working with Harold Ramis? Um, those guys were great. There, there was uh, back in the days that we shot back in the days when we shot Ghostbuster Two. They didn't have the visual effects that they have now. Everything you don't was- say. Yes. Um, everything, I'm uh, sorry, I just grabbed a peanut while we were on break. Sigourney Weaver was still hot then, right? <laughs> yes. So, so it, was like a much, it was much more complicated doing visual effects and everything. And um, so we, we were doing this scene where the ectoblaster, is that the name of the car? The ecto something. You remember Ecto there? one. Yes. Was, you know, rushing up Fifth Avenue. And we had to lock up like six blocks of Fifth Avenue and it was really hard to do. It took us like 10 minutes to shut down the whole street. And uh, back then I was a second assistant director and I was in charge with the lockups. I had like 50 PAs working for me. And, and you know, we're finally ready to go. We get the go ahead. We lock down the street. I think I was exaggerating. I think it took like five minutes to shut down the street. And then all of a sudden, so I go, okay, stand by. And all of a sudden I hear this, uh, Drew, and I was like, yeah. And uh, my friend Sid said, uh, we lost Bill. This is Bill Murray. <laughs> I was like, uh, okay, where's Bill? And she said, well, he said to tell you he went to get a piece of pizza. He'll be right back. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was the ectoblaster. But he was really nice. They were all, they were all really nice. We well, went- maybe someone was supposed to keep him on set and they didn't use the magic word, Drew. Yeah, well, you know. Han, but do you know uh, what the magic word is? It's not please. What is it? Please. Yeah. The magic word is please. That's an exact quote from Ghostbusters. I just watched it the other night. It's one of my favorite freaking movies ever. I'm a scientist. You like one though. Two is kind of lame, right? No, I love all of them. No, listen, kind of lame. Okay. Evil dead. Really lame. Also love it. There's a difference between movies that try to pass off as being like seriously good works of art and they're just terrible. And then there's movies that are terrible, but works of art. And Ghostbusters 2 is a terrible work of art because first off, Rick Moranis <laughs> is awesome. Let's there's even this one around talking like this. He doesn't matter what he's even saying. It's great. Um, one. I would two, agree. Harold Ramis by himself, period. Three, Bill Murray. The Dow of Bill Murray alone. Dan Aykroyd, who does believe in all the Ghostbusters stuff, okay? And I don't, I don't care, because you want to know what? Uh, I was a child when Ghostbusters 2 was 87, 88 came out, and I loved it. And now going back at 38 and watching it again, I still love it. Whereas I've gone back and watched a lot of movies where I was like, okay, I get it. Like, this movie's good. But, like, I don't think it's as good as I remember it being. Like, you go see a movie like It, you know, like, you're like, oh, John Atlanta, like, this, this is going to be yeah. a great movie. No, no, it's not. <laughs> Tim Curry's amazing as a clown. But everything about that movie is literally horrible. Are there any movies that, that you look back on, ones that you worked on, where you, you maybe rewatch them or come across a scene and it, it brings you back to that day? of like something interesting that happened or a crazy story. You're like, Oh my God, I can't believe that. You know, I forgot about that. Well, this, this isn't a crazy story, but when I just rewatched Philadelphia for the first time in many years, I saw myself in the movie. I totally, <laughs> I totally forgot. I was You're in an extra. Movie. Yeah. I was in front of the courthouse when the news reporters are there waiting for them to come out of the courthouse and I'm standing up in front. Uh, trying to ki- oh, and then another really. This is a good one. Uh, do you, did you guys ever hear the movie King of New York? Christopher, yes. I mentioned it before. I've heard of it? I yeah. haven't seen it. Christopher Walken and uh, well, don't say. Yeah. And, well, what's uh, it like to work with Christopher Walken? Oh, oh, oh! Continue on with your story. Well, don't let listen her to the story right, I love first. Christopher Walken. Well, this will segue into what yeah, you're yeah. asking me, Benny. So, 
so back then, um, Chris, Christopher was uh, doing a lot of drugs, as, as I mentioned, most of us were, but he, he was so <laughs> shit-faced at one point. First of all, it was this whole chase driving movie, and we could never have him in a car, actually, with the car running because it was too dangerous. So all the scenes with him driving were either pushing the car, towing the car, thinking that the car's moving. It was hilarious. But so anyway, so at the end, he gets shot, and he's wa- and we stole a lot of the footage. It, of- is that usual to be able to work around someone's alcoholism? I was just going to say that. Like, I, mean, really I, mean, I don't mean to interrupt you, but this time yeah. I'm really curious. Like You just basically said that like instead of making Christopher Walken drive... For a movie about like literally having chase scenes, we're just gonna fake every single scene with him ever doing anything because he's dangerous. That's the actual liability. Like Tom Cruise will jump off a forty-story building, but we can't get Chris Walken to fucking go down a street without being fucking boozed up. Well, I would say people are less tolerant now than they used to be. I mean, back then it was sort of more. I mean, everybody was doing drugs in the nineties. I mean, it was back then it was pretty common. I mean, uh, about. Six years ago, I worked on a show um, down in uh, Georgia, which is now my favorite state. And um, the, I had come in, they had fired a first assistant. Mine's director. consciousness. Yours consciousness. So, and um, so the producers talked to me and the director. We had just shown up to do a new episode. And they were like, look, we just have to give you one, uh, one piece of information. Do not worry. X actor who will remain nameless is stoned all the time. He stinks of pot. He has t- told us, do not even try to ask me to be sober or not sober with not, not stoned because I can't function if I'm not stoned. So, Sounds like one of our co-hosts. It was just, uh, it was just he was just always stoned and it was like, okay with everyone. And then we had this older uh, actress come in who was like in her 80s, who was like this famous star way back when. And she, she came in one day and sat down next to him. She goes, Woo, you smell funny. <laughs> no, no, you know, that was just, that's the way it was. It was just a given. But um, anyway, so the story I was going to tell you was that he, at the end of the movie, he's walking through Times Square and it's like packed with people. And we just totally stole the shot. And um, he was, and, and he's covered in blood and he was so fucked up that he couldn't walk. I, I know he's not like this anymore. So yeah. I'm well, a little guilty. Chris wa- Christopher Walken walking. <laughs> Anyway, so I had to hold him and walk with him, but it was so crowded that no one could see that I was holding him. So I was, oh, oh I had my arm, my head down. I was just holding him with my arm and just walking, and he was just like weaving his way through time. <laughs> and it That's worked. Amazing. It totally worked. So. <laughs> and when you say you stole the shot, does that mean you just kind of did a gorilla style? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. They also yeah. told us that we were not allowed to shoot in Penn Station, which is a big crowded. Uh, uh, oh no, it was Port Authority. No, it was Penn Station. And Abel was fearless. I have to say, he was just one of those filmmakers that just did anything. Before you had to get all the right like papers stamped. You were and probably stuff. still supposed to do that. <laughs> uh, we were still supposed to do that, and he was like, "Fuck it, we're gonna do it." <laughs> we just That's awesome. Strapped the, the camera on the cameraman Ken Kelsch's back, and Harvey just walked into the station, and we just started following him. We stole, we stole shots, and we just got some great stuff. So you know. It, the bigger the productions, the more, you know, cumbersome all that stuff gets. That leads me into a question I had. Um, you know, you've done these these huge productions as well as smaller independent films, especially the ones that, they, you know, that you've written and directed. Is there something you like more about one or the other um, in terms of just the atmosphere or, or what goes into producing something like that? Yeah. Um, you know, I... I I don't like the huge budget movies because there's so many egos that I'm constantly dealing with and people aren't necessarily there because they believe in the project. They're there because they're getting paid a lot. Um, There's something really refreshing about working on a movie that's low budget because people are doing it because they want to do it and they believe in the project for the most part. I mean, you know, you you reach a point of diminishing return, but... Um, the crews on the bigger budget movies are really, really good for the most part. And, but you can also get really good crews on smaller budgets. I mean, I guess my favorite are sort of the, uh, medium budget art films that are just sort of like character films and like Philadelphia, like reversal fortune, um, you know, like, uh, 
those kinds of movies. That those are the ones I sort of found running on empty. Those those were the ones that I sort of found the nicest sort of balance between the two. Sure. And and in terms of you you mentioned that like you're you're really good at kind of keeping the production flowing and and wrangling all everything that's going on. I know with bigger productions, you know, it's deceptive how much time it can take to set up a five second shot. Um, you know, just in, in my limited experience as an amateur filmmaker, music video producer, doing everything myself is so quick and easy if you're directing and shooting and everything like that. And then I've had some opportunities to work with slightly larger productions and it's like frustrating to see how, okay, all right, we're going to uh, relight the scene. Everyone go away for, you know, an hour or two. And it's like, well, what if we just move that light real quick and just move the camera? <laughs> like, do you ever find yourself like, um, battling that urge to be like not not half-ass something but almost be like is there a way we could uh maybe scooch this along a bit yeah i mean and not only that but you're not allowed to touch things that are not in your right unions uh, you know like god forbid i pick up a light or move yep. something that prop yeah that out and you know unions are very defensive about that because you know what they say is you're if you're doing my job you're taking away the need to hire another person. So you're taking away work from, from my brothers and sisters in my union. Mm-hmm. So people can get really sticky about that. So it's really liberating not to have to worry about all that, that kind of stuff. And to give you a perfect example, I mean, nowadays, sound mixers always mic people. They put, they put mics on them as well as boom them. And we were on this little movie, Gypsy Moon, that I was telling you about. And um, my director, uh, Gigi, was like, wait, let's just grab the shot. And then uh, the first AD turned and said, well, wait a second. The actors aren't mic'd yet. The actors aren't mic'd. And I was like, they don't have to be mic'd. We can boom them. But, you know, you just get to the point where you're, you have this mindset that it has to be done this way. You have to yep. light a certain way. And you don't. And it's, sometimes it's really nice to just throw all that aside. How are you supposed and, to mix in an 11.3 surround sound if you don't have anyone with, like, individual, like... Because there's so many movies you see from the 80s or whatever, and all of a sudden the audio gets great, and it's like, well, Margaret, that yeah. was really weird. <laughs> and and then you, you can see them, like, they're like, they're not even matched up properly. Because literally... <laughs> And, and then there's some people like Quentin Tarantino. Like if you watch Reservoir Dogs, I don't understand what anyone's saying. I don't know why he doesn't care about what anyone says. They're all they're all talking fast. And they're all just going. I don't even know what's going on. And I don't know. And even with my surround sound system, that's all Martin Logan electrostatic speakers. I don't know what Steve Buscemi says to freaking Harvey Keitel in that movie. Does it matter? They, they Does it matter? They, that's no, but that's the point. They don't care because he probably was like, you know what? Just put a boom mic on him. Fuck it. I don't even care what they said. Just make him angry and shoot people. Exactly. Exactly. That's that's so right. Yeah. Sometimes it's nice to just mix the shit up a little bit and just let it loose. You know. Sure. <laughs> So, you, you know, you've obviously worked on movies for a while and, you know, worked with actors from different generations. Have you noticed um, any distinct differences between like, well, I guess the thing that popped in mind was it di- like how social media might have affected what, you know, it's like to work in the movie industry. Did you notice a difference between working on, mu- on movies like, you know, pre-2000s, pre-Facebook, pre-Instagram and now like this current era? Well, I, I'm definitely conscious of actors' training and, and what their what their frame of reference is. Like, I remember when I worked on this musical that I told you about with Chris Ashley. Um, the first, you know, we had a couple of weeks of rehearsals, and the first day of rehearsals, the two actors that starred in the movie, one was a big star on the West End, and one um, was a woman who won the Tony Award for Book of Mormon uh, that year, and. Um, <laughs> Sorry, my cats keep jumping on the table. Um, and uh, I'll never forget, they showed up for rehearsal and knew the whole movie by heart. They were completely off book. Wow. Because, you know, as a Broadway actor, you show up for rehearsals knowing the, the part. You don't, you don't mm-hmm. show up and, you know, whereas, well, nowadays we don't even have sides, which is the, the pages. The actors are looking at their phones the whole time. But, right. I mean... Actors will show up and not even have attempted to learn their lines. And I just think Joanne Woodward would have never put up with that. When I hear about Meryl Streep, she would never have put up with that. I mean, there's just a certain um, discipline that I think has kind of fallen by the wayside because there's not a standard that's being kept up. Do you also think that maybe that's affected by the medium of switching from like film to digital where there's not that 
uh, huge pressure to nail the takes because it's costing money every foot of film. Yeah, and you keep the you keep the the camera rolling. You don't have to cut. Yeah. It used to be yeah. when we were shooting on film that you know you cut right away because you don't film is really expensive, and now it's like. Just keep it rolling. Just keep talking, you know? Yeah. Do, do you run into that where, you know, the director or, or producer or anyway, might just start yelling out different uh, ideas in the middle of a take just for alternate, you know, versions of what's going on? Oh, totally. Totally. And uh, I remember when I worked with Sidney Lumet, um, we rehearsed on Running on Empty, which is a really good movie if you haven't seen it. Mm-hmm. We rehearsed the whole movie on a stage uh, that he had taped out. He had the art department had taped out the whole stage and we would do run-throughs of the movie so that when we showed up on set, the actors had a sense, because when you're filming a movie or a TV show, you're not, you're not shooting in order. You're not shooting in sequence. You're shooting mainly by location or you're shooting out a particular mm-hmm. actor. And this way they had a sense emotionally where they were from beat to beat and he had planned everything out and he had recorded the rehearsals and we would just come in there and nail it and, and knock it out. And nowadays it's like, um, especially in television, on, on some of the, the network shows I've worked on lately, it's just a little bit more, um, someone will yell something out in the middle of the take and it'll be, it's more contrived in a way. Certain. Mm. So, contrived but, but how? Like, ex- explain what you mean by that. Um. Well, some of the shows that I've worked on recently have been more... Well, in television, the writer is king. So the executive producer in television is the, is the head writer, basically, the showrunner. So it's really a writer's medium. And the directors who show up are really guest stars or guest directors who come in and basically have to articulate in a clever and creative way what the show is the characters already established the visuals are kind of you know this is the way we shoot shameless we did a lot of handheld i mean that's kind of the style of the show so you're not coming in and remaking the wheel you're coming in and and facilitating an episode and making it clever and good but staying within what they want and and the writer of that episode sits on set and gives the director notes so it's a very different process you know when you're doing a movie the director is king or queen (laughs) <laughs> and um, it, it's really up to them to put the creative, you know, to put the, the story together any way they want. Now, a lot of times when you go into the editing room, the producers will have final cut. So the film gets taken. They get a, a number of days that they're allowed to cut. And then the producers can come in and change it around, you know, depending, again, on the dynamic of the director. It's always so interesting this how many cooks are in the kitchen in a project mm-hmm. like that. Um as far as and this is this is something I've kind of wondered. You know, you have a, a TV show like like Shameless or any long running uh, show where there's so many episodes that often have different directors, different writers. You know, different. Like, there's such a rotating cast of characters behind the scenes. Uh, whose job is it to make sure that the show maintains a cohesiveness? Uh, well, the writers. And then a lot of times the crew will do so. And the actors. I mean, the actors are more familiar with their parts than anybody. Mm-hmm. If, if the actors on a series don't like a director, that director doesn't usually come back unless there's mm-hmm. extenuating. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, didn't Emmy Rossum do a lot of directing or something? I don't, I don't know the whole story or something like that. But she left Shameless and came back. Were you there? When were you in... Uh, part of Shameless because I mean a lot of people obviously love that show and for me I was never even a William H Macy fan until I watched he's that show amazing and now, in that now he's like my favorite amazing. like he's like Dan DeVito after I watched Always Sunny I'm like yeah. <laughs> that guy from Twins is like my favorite actor ever but it's the same thing William H Macy in that show but doesn't didn't Emmy Rossum have a lot to do with like how that show now goes down or well until it ended. First of all, I know you're secretly in love with him. Well, I don't. Know I, no, not secretly. I do love Emmy Rossum. Yeah. Um, as the show gets more and more successful, the writers get, or the, the actors get more power. Uh, like Taylor and, Swift. Yeah, perhaps. <laughs> well, no, we were talking to John Garabedian, this amazing DJ, and he said that, that she stopped being as good, with same with Lady Gaga, when they started going, it's me, it's me, instead of Red One, or their, their right. producer or their director, because they have so much control. Mm-hmm. They're like, oh, Taylor Swift's like, oh, it was always my song, when it's like, that dude in Sweden totally took your song and made it a number one. Yeah, um, is that what you're saying? And it also, yeah, and, and I think it also confuses things sometimes. Like 
Tim Oliphant. I don't know if you ever seen Justified, the series. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have. Series. yeah. Um, he started becoming more and more powerful on the show, and he was. I thought he was brilliant as an actor on the show, but it's like he started weighing in on the scripts and getting involved in that kind of stuff. And, and he's not sitting in the writer's room coming up with the story arcs and figuring out, you know, the through line of the series. He's just looking at an episode and going, Oh no, he should do this at that point. But if you're a viewer and you're watching it from start to finish, that's why the writers have so much control or at least it's out that way because they should, there's, there's this whole arc in television that doesn't exist in movies and um i think the actors tend to convolute that a little bit i mean not always terribly but it's just it doesn't feel like the right choice for me and um you know it's as a director and what i found as a director there are very there are very few if any other people on set because you're shooting out of sequence especially that are really following the through line of the story they're just looking at it from scene to scene it's like you have to remember where was the character emotionally in the scene prior to this, even though we shot that scene two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So it's like, there's this disjointedness that only a few people are really in touch with. And the writers, they sit in a, the way the writers work is they sit in a writer's room together and they brainstorm and they come up with outlines for the series. And then they assign different writers to write different episodes, but then the showrunner, reads all the episodes and and does polishes usually depending on how controlling the showrunner is the head writer so uh, you know there's a very uh calculated arc and you know progression of the story and if you're just coming in and looking at it as an actor or as a guest director well, it's, whatever, it's so it's so important that you say that because when you watch a lot of these series and people are binging them now, there's a lot of subtleties in one-liners and way shots were done that you go, that's brilliant. But then if someone, like, if, if I can understand where, where a writer would be like, yo, dude, you don't know how they're going to feel at the end by this scene when you're at that location six months from now. <laughs> and that only the subtlety of and nuances of sticking to the actual script. So it's funny to me because now I'm, like, hearing that there is almost like an inner war sometimes in movies and shows between what the writers envision and how it's going to be like, you know, executed the directors in their sort of interplay as far as how do I bring this story to life? And then the, the actual actors going, well, I want to say this on camera as my character because <laughs> I'm this person and they have this egocentrism. And then the dichotomy between that, between movies and television is that movies, you could kind of fucking edit whatever you want. Whereas television, they do have a very specific arc. And that if you don't get this foreshadowing or this done in these episodes, then it ruins the whole fucking point of this. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we had one writer take us aside and whisper, uh, two episodes from now, she has a nervous breakdown. It's like, oh, okay, well, that's useful information <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> for her to know because she's got to lay the groundwork for that. You know? Woody Allen wouldn't do that. He would just give you a nervous breakdown. <laughs> exactly. So I watched this great Australian series called Offspring. Have you guys heard of it? It's no. so good. We've turned on a couple of our friends to it. Everyone loves it. So like in, well, I'm going to spoiler alert. In like <laughs> the third season, one of your favorite characters dies and you're just like wait what just like out of the blue gets hit by a car and dies and you know literally like i'm up all night just traumatized and then i read i start doing some research and i read i find out that the guy got offered a big series in the u.s <laughs> yeah. so they had to kill him so like sometimes stuff like that just happens because you know or somebody gets fired and you know for sexual uh, inappropriateness or stuff like that you know like all this happens Obviously, you know, sometimes it's just, uh, you know, life that got, got in the way of the story or whatever. But as, as someone involved in, in the front end, as far as being there during filming, um, in relation to, to post-production and things like that, uh, how often are you surprised, uh, offended or, or like, you know, not super pumped with the way something that you helped create was, was transformed and ultimately presented to the world? Uh, my last feature that I directed, I was pretty upset with. Really? Um, actually, one, wow. one, of the, one of the things that upset me the most was the sound edit because I had put together this montage that I really was like, sync, you know, timing, sync, what's the word? Sync, uh, whatever. Syncopation? 
Thank you. <laughs> Syncopating to yeah. the rhythm of the cuts and the rhythm of the music. And mm. then when the producers got a hold of it, they just took all the music out and changed the music. So wow. I, things like that. That's one of the hardest things uh, when you're a director is not having final cut. And, and I remember sitting next to Robert Altman at a event, a DGA dinner thing. And uh, he was talking about his last movie, The Gingerbread Man, that they just took, even if a director is famous as Robert Altman, who directed Nashville, among other things, gets his movie taken away from him, you know, I mean, then you can, you can understand how it can happen to you, but it's just like, things can get changed so drastically in the cut. Yeah, my background's kind of in editing, uh, in, in the terms of, you know, very short narrative and music videos style stuff, but uh, I can see the power in it. And so anything that I, if I, if I do a music video, if I, if I direct that video, I'm going to edit it because I've worked with yeah, other mm -hmm. people. Um, and, and I'm, I'm at the point now because of bad experiences where if I'm going to direct a video, I'm going to shoot it too, because <laughs> I don't trust anyone to, to like actually do what Why I'm Why is that get whole done. scene completely out of focus? Why is Brian <laughs> Pitcher running I've, away I've and going, to, hey guys, let's get I've, some pizza? Let's I've get had, some pizza. Yeah, you know, you're sitting there trying to explain what, what you want and, and some people just either can't get it Brian or, Pitcher. or they don't. I love Brian. Brian's a I love guy. Brian Pitcher too, but um, he's the giant. Stop, hide, what, you're, he, stop he, interrupting This is what he does ben. during a set though. He'll be like, David Elfson, you should talk about this. We have the guy from Megadeth for 30 minutes and he's like, hey, why don't you do like, He doesn't even know what we're shooting, Drew. He doesn't even know what we're shooting it for and he's like, you guys should totally cover this and this. Like, Dude, the, aim the fucking camera. Yeah, the point being, like, if, if you have a vision, especially, like, where you were saying you wrote, you know, these movies, these features, and, like, they, this is your baby, and then you have to give it to other people and trust them with it. It's something that uh, I have been forever scarred, and I will never be able to be a successful director because I would never let anyone touch my, my stories well, to do that. Well, no, the, the secret to that is you have to find a group of people to work with that you keep working with that you trust. And once mm -hmm. you... Once you have a connection with people, like I have a cinematographer that I love that I will work with all, anytime I can. Now, he's very busy. He does other things. But, he, you know, it's like you, you find he's that. He's not a director, too, is he? Say what? He's not a director, too, is he? No, that's a great Good. thing. He has no interest in directing yeah. whatsoever. He's totally visual. <laughs> well, let so. him know we don't have any interest in him directing either. <laughs> Fuck you, cinematographer. Make sure it looks good. Make sure it's shot well. Make sure it's the right aspect ratio. Make sure the key lighting is right. Make sure the background, for, it's at 2.8, 60 million, whatever. But this Nothing is super else. interesting because a lot of people we've talked to, I think that's a common thread among successful people and teams is that, you know, you find those people that you're able to delegate stuff that you trust to them, you Corey. know, and you just can continue to work with them. And that's part of like creating a successful project is that team, you know, and being able to you fit into to your You mean you just send it to Corey? <laughs> just no, exactly. But that's, that's our the team. Thing. Just send it to I Corey. will trust Corey to edit and mix anything. You know, I don't want to touch it myself. <laughs> right, and you can't you can't see everything, especially when you're directing. There's something sure. going on if you have two cameras at the same time. You can't be watching both at the same time. So you have to trust the people that you work with. And I know it's hard, Corey, because I certainly understand that. But you know, that's why that's why you see. You trust his iPhones. Yeah. <laughs> No, I mean, I, and once again, like, obviously, I'm not pursuing that path, so I, it's not something I'll have to worry about. I remember specifically um, watching a documentary on Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which those guys shot their pilot, you know, with a little handy cam in their apartment and uh, and got it, got it, you know, sold it and everything. And then they showed up after it was on FX or whatever, and the the you know networks like here's your crew and they're like but we we can do this we're good and they're like i don't know if i can uh, they're like they were blown away by the fact that they had to hand the camera off and and all this stuff and obviously it, it's worked out pretty well for them but i can totally relate to that in not just uh filmmaking or or, or video aspect but in, in music as well you know it's it's weird you know Siobhan, you work with, you do you do a lot of gigs where you're recording for other people. You don't know what's going to happen to your tracks after mm -hmm. you send them off. Like, you could send them to someone, they could just absolutely destroy them, mash them up, and now your name's on something. Oh, this happens in live settings, too. I mean, yeah. if, even if you show up to a gig and you say, hey, are you going to EQ my violin? And it's some sound guy that you've never talked to before, and that's your sound. That person Siobhan, has control over what you're doing. I have a personal question. Do you ever play okay. with Rodolfo? And then, like, one of his fucking weird jazz friends just throws down their guitar, and you're just, like, sitting there with your <laughs> string section. You're like, why is that guy running off? And then the bass player looks at you, and he just goes, it's just jazz, baby. 
That's, that that's, hasn't happened to me with yeah. Rodolfo, but there was, I don't remember what, it was like some big show that I played a long, long time ago. And just real quick, Rodolfo Zuniga was a guest on a previous podcast who's yeah, a musician. Yeah, he's a friend the of mine. drummer from Julio drummer. Iglesias, but he's yeah. much more than that, Drew. Just so you know. I, I, have, I have been on stage, though, at a very big, like, fest- this was a really long time ago. I was just playing in a string section with, like, a big artist, and I don't remember who it was, but somebody in the band was, like, tripping on something and just walked off stage. <laughs> just, like, left. Just left. And the guitar player had to sit, like, just walked. It was like, okay, I guess I'm singing the rest of the show, and it was, like, a big show. That's amazing. You, know, I, like, what, you know, I love that you're okay. so famous that you don't even remember if it was Trans-Siberian Orchestra, it wasn't if it was Trans-Siberian Andrea Orchestra. Bocelli, if it was Michael Buble, Earth, Wind, and Fire. I yeah, feel like I that's earth, wind, and fire a, kind of it thing. It might have been, it might have been, but it also might have been a tribute band. So I don't want, I don't want to. Quote Are you sure it, it could have been earth? Sure. I feel like it, if if, me, if it wasn't September, if it was October, maybe that they were tripping. Tell me about the Queen's Gambit, though, Siobhan. How, what was that like? Where, how, where were you? It was. It was so I so I live in Miami and the composer who did the whole score is based in Miami and we I had done you know he'll often call me because he's looking he'll do a lot of stuff with software instruments but he'll call like string players or different musicians to record the cues to make it sound more real. So he's called me like over the last several years to just sometimes he'll have to do a proposal for a Netflix show. They'll say, "Oh, can you give us some samples of what music you think goes with this?" And so he would call me to do cues and uh it was like about a year and a half ago. He called me and said, "Hey, can you come record some stuff?" It was like 11 p.m. one night. I was like, "Sure." He's like, "Oh yeah, I'm, I'm working on this thing. Maybe for this show, it's kind of about chess and all this." And it was like really early on. Um, and so he's like, "You know, I think the the I don't know who was directing him on the music, but you know, they're like, oh, I think they're going to go with this. Like, can you record some stuff?" And he kind of showed me a couple of the clips. And it was it wasn't until like it came out where he called me. He's like, oh, yeah, you made it in the credits for the Queen's Gambit. Uh, Little did I know that I had just recorded like all the cues at his house like a couple of years ago. <laughs> well, and, yeah. and you're going to be part of a, possibly a classic show of our time because if it continues as it is, I mean, I, I certainly feel personally that of the shows last year, that, that was towards the very top echelon of like, you know, sitting at home and everyone's literally binging stuff and you watch so much stuff. Like, like how is this number three on Netflix? But it is, it is, it is two and a half hours of that. But then you watch Queen's Gambit and you're like, holy crap. Chess is interesting. And it's in, and the music, the music is so like, I mean, obviously Mm -hmm. knowing that Siobhan is really cool, but then I went and listened to it anyway. And I was like, even if I didn't know that Siobhan had done it, like this music is, is haunting. And I think that's another mm-hmm. huge component of that television show is not only is it a completely different subject done really well, but the music um, and all of that is very synergistic, which based on what you've told me between how production works with the director, with the writers, with, all, with the actors, seems like it's very hard to get all those things in tandem. Well, even with music, like it's so interesting to me. That's why I've always loved working with composers and why like I've always loved to do studio work or like I'll go to people's houses and record cues, you know, because I always want to learn about like what is the art behind like how you write a score for a film? Because it's so interesting when he was working on that. He did a lot of studying about like chess as a game and how it works and the personalities and the history. Like so much of it was like intellectual study. (laughs) <laughs> no, but it was really cool because when you listen to the music, it's got the same like point counterpoint move that's in chess, you know, mm. so there's like a real like like tie together between the actual motion of the music and the motion of the game. When you know, and that's, yeah, when she's looking up at the ceiling and imagining the pieces moving mm-hmm. the music that plays during that, too. I, I just remember that those sequences were uh, yeah, and so much of it is subliminal. I mean, if you're not a musician, sure. you're just watching it. It's just so enhanced. I mean, I love the sound edit. That's one of my favorite uh, parts of the process. Just the sound effects and the music and and the levels that you're working with. Well, Drew, you bring up a good point because when I used to work at Best Buy and Circuit City in a different retail hell, okay, (laughs) one of the one of the taglines they give you, and this is actually a true story, and you can tell me otherwise. Seventy percent of the of the visual audio, uh, the visual experience of a movie is the audio, and. uh, we used to do what they called a deselect demo, where you'd play like a, like a scene from Jurassic Park on the time at the time I worked there. Like a fifty inch television was big. You'd play like that scene on the speakers on the television and be like, okay, and then you'd play it on like a fifteen inch LCD because those existed then. And then you'd put it on like a crazy sound system and be like, how did that make you feel? And always like nine out of ten, it's like, oh yeah, well when you had the three thousand dollar. Bose, I say that it's not that good, but crazy sound system that that's a huge deal. And I can only imagine now you being, uh, you know, assistant director, a director, producer that 
people don't realize how important the actual sound is because you just said that the reason you are upset about your film is because the sound edit sucked. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's it's really true. It, it makes a big difference. So. Should have called Corey. <laughs> <laughs> I know a guy. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> no, but it's that. I mean, that's so true. It's amazing because even like like working with composers, like the the composition and the music that you choose is one thing, but even like the way that they create the sounds is like a whole other thing. You could have the same music with a different set of sounds or like different mixing. Corey, as you know, well, how many times do like, we get do I get angry at you, Siobhan, for not reading my mind too? Because it, like we just did a song, Drew, and she's that's ninety so percent of your life, dude. You yeah, get no, angry. You're always she's angry because so no one read she's your mind. Angry, and I'm like, why? I don't, don't so even good. know well, what you're talking about. The problem about. is, Drew, is that she's so good that I. I just expect her to always like do exactly what I thought. So the first time like on this song, she did totally not the right thing in my mind. So like I got mad at her, but then I was like, I'm sorry. Like you just didn't understand what I meant. And by not telling you anything. And then the second time it came back though, I was like, this is what I wanted in the first place. Why didn't you just give me that? Like, why did you, this is exactly it. It was literally like two pieces of information that I needed. In other like words, it took ben, 10 seconds. ben would be the director that you butted heads with. No, no, I'm all about <laughs> the would, character. You would sit, you would sit back and go. You'd sit back and go. I'm just gonna wait for him. No, to make I build her character all the time because Siobhan's so used to people being amazed by her that I'm like, no, but can you do it again? Oh no, that's and then, not and then, true. And then I hook her that up with Marty true. Friedman, who, if you don't know, uh, was a guitar player uh, for Megadeth. He sold 40 million records with them, I think, something like that. Um, he's a, one of the greatest guitar players in the world, and he hazed poor Siobhan because he didn't know who she was he's like oh this was just a string person and he made her write things over and 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 the point is is that we drag her through all the psychosis and I, I just get mad when she doesn't understand my level of psychosis and isn't on my wavelength of weird and if she doesn't get it the first time I yell at her until she feels bad about it and then just does it right <laughs> Siobhan, do you, do you have anything you want to add to this? <laughs> I mean there are probably lots she's, of things I she's can like, always she's right like, though I quit it's no, always right. like a no, but you're a classic micromanager because like you're you're very good with the overall creative vision. But then I think you have trouble like you truly delegating sometimes, you know. But it's good. It's, I don't it's have good enough people you're, working you're on very, the set. <laughs> if I had, no, because you're very particular about what you want. That's he's a that's he's great. a posthumous micromanager. He, he, he goes back. And he's like, I wish I wanted you to do this. I'm like, well, why didn't you fucking? Say I wanted you to shoot it on eight millimeter. You're like, dude, I just shot this with like, you Alexa. No, but you know that that brings up a good point, which is I've heard some horror stories about some actors that I've worked with who have just been absolute teddy bears, and and I think it just comes down to they're very very demanding of themselves. They're very, very hardworking mm -hmm. and they expect the same from everyone that works with yep. them. Jack sure. Nicholson was like that and Donald Wait, who, who, you broke up. Who? Jack Nicholson was like that. Oh, well, and you Donald don't want to stumble on his name. <laughs> yeah, and Donald Sutherland, I heard horror stories about him. Oh, don't anybody smoke anywhere near him. He, he throws a fit and he's so difficult and I loved working with him. He was fantastic. I mean, I had to be you on think has anything to do with the fact that you're entrancing, smart and beautiful? Um, no, I think it had to do with the fact that everything he needed and to, to make a good performance, I made sure was there for him. And, and the same was true of Harvey Keitel too. I mean, he was really demanding, like he would make me put all the off camera actors in place. And like, if we were in a big crowded place and you didn't even see those actors, he'd want them all there. So he does he like, sound like all of his characters? He's like, okay, Drew, I want you to take John. And put him over there. Like, is, is, is he I was wondering when we we're going to get a Ben impression on this episode. Yeah, it's terrible. It's always terrible. <laughs> but like Harvey Keitel or even Christopher Walken, is it is? Are they like that always? Is that really just it? Bill Murray? Are those guys the cliches of themselves always? Yes, yes, they are. <laughs> I would say definitely. So there you go. Um, do you guys know who Wally Shawn is? It's spectacular. You know, from Brideshead or from yeah, uh, I've heard Brides. I've, yeah, Brides. What is it? Uh, Bridesfield. Um, it's spectacular or something like that. Anyway, he's in Young Sheldon. I don't know if you've ever seen Young Sheldon, but uh, wait, why am I bringing him up again? I forget. Oh, we were oh, talking about uh, Princess not, Bride. You're oh, talking about the Princess he's Bride. He's not right? like that at all. He's like really very serious and soft spoken. Inconceivable guy, right? Inconceivable. Yeah, that was. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> anyway, he's not like that at all. He's like a total, you know, erudite, very bright. Yeah, you know, he went to Yale, and he's like very, you know soft-spoken and intellectual He's probably told did he tell you he was an erudite because i feel like that's something that, that people that would go to yale would say about themselves i'm actually an erudite 
on no. Match.com. No, I, I worked <laughs> with I'm turned him. on by other aerodites. I worked with him on Radio Days, and then um, I saw I got to work with him again on Young Sheldon, and it we became friends. And I I looked him up, and his his uh, partner is a woman in New York who's a professor of literature at Columbia, Deborah. Oh, wow. And um, she's like an incredible writer. I read her book, but but I definitely made a point of sort of like looking into them because they were both like really impressive, interesting people. I thought and and you know kind of civil rights kind of people, which I am as well. So we were sort of had a lot of uh, things to talk about while we were waiting during lighting setups when we were waiting around. Do you want to talk about it? Because if you're fighting for something, let's hear about it. Lay it on us, Drew. Well, I'm a big fan of the Southern Poverty Law Center. I don't know if you guys know who that is. They were originally started down Our south. listeners, I can guarantee you, at least most of them don't know. So enlighten yeah. us, or yeah. them, or us, or all of us. Well, this, is a, this is a privately funded organization that hires uh, lawyers to represent people that are being persecuted for their, uh, you know, whether they're minorities uh, they, they track hate groups in the United States and give those give that information to the government. So they're really an an, uh, an anti uh, persecution kind of organization that fights for civil rights and fights for humanity. So I really believe in them. They're they're a great group and they do a lot of really good things. Well, how can we help that group and find out more? Just uh, Google Southern Poverty Law Center, and uh, you'll hear all about them. Morris Dees was the original founder. He was a lawyer down south who originally was a racist. He grew up in a very sort of white, privileged family. And something happened in his life. He's written books about his life and stuff that made him sort of understand that he was narrow-minded and bigoted. And he sort of like saw the light, if you will, and, and started this organization that just does great, great good for people. So wow. check him out. That's awesome. Yeah. Thinking of it today, what a day yesterday was. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> yes. This uh I this. will tell you, I don't know exactly what happened, Drew, because I was in the studio working on Skid Row and then I came out and I saw my <laughs> Facebook feed and I saw things like Donald Trump had yeah. his Twitter feed shut off and I was like, I don't want to know anything about this. And I I was in rehearsal all day and I, I got and I, and I, and I, like, what's going oh on? And then I read another yeah. thing that said this is the, the worst day in American history, and this is honestly, I gotta be real with you. At what point do you say I don't want to know? And like, I, I don't think my liver can handle it at, at this funny, moment. Funny, funny enough, just for our, our viewers and listeners. So we're recording this the day after that the uh, the Capitol was was looted, <laughs> um, Capitol <laughs> building. But uh, the, the reason I say that is because the the, uh, the reason I say this because Ben just said, "Oh, this is the worst day in American history." We don't know if there'll be another one before this airs. So right, this was the worst day Good in American point. history Hold so far. Our beer, <laughs> yeah. America, or should I say, America? With the uh, with America, the, yeah, we'll be because a, we'll, we'll be in a different uh, political climate when this episode. Well, but comes don't you out. guys we'll all know that, that it was Antifa? That it couldn't possibly be people that just hate things for no reason and that aren't organized enough to even have any kind of belonging other than hatred for things. Yeah, exactly. Fuck it's those people! Craziness, and we're, <laughs> we're why don't they light each other on fire? We're and now save in us 20, all. We're in twenty twenty one. It's supposed you to. You know be what better. they should do? They should take all their fucking legal guns. All their AR-15s and the things that they fucking need to explode people and go shoot each other and see how fast they can fucking kill the surplus population so we can stop having to drive Teslas and giving them a monopoly because we can kill, keep putting smog into the world because we know fossil fuels are more important than running electricity as long as there's less people. You want to talk like religions and abortion too? If that anyone listens to that, none of that made any sense. <laughs> <laughs> what I was gonna say, that out um, crazy, the outside, crazy. Be, because you know, I, I think it's, in, I think it's great. The uh, the Southern Poverty Law Group, and you, you kind of expressed that that's one of your interests is 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 in that like civil uh, area. Uh, when you're not producing movies and, and working in, in in cinema and everything, like what what do you do for fun? What what is what is your way to relax when you're not doing a twelve hour day on uh. set? Um, I'm obsessed with yoga. I do yoga every day, even if I have to go to work at five thirty. That's why she looks young. Six in the morning, I, I get. I do a thirty minutes of yoga every morning religiously. It just—it's it amazing. Good for you. Yeah, wow. it just keeps me sane. And um, 
I, you know, we live up in the hills and there's a great hiking trail down the road that uh, we like to take our dog on. And that's just, you know, just a few things to unplug, just to try mm -hmm. to get away. In the middle of the pandemic, we actually went whitewater rafting uh, in Northern mm -hmm. California, just like drove up and uh, joined this group, but we were isolated in our own raft and just, just have to find ways to shut it all down, I think. Um, you know, it, it, it's just, uh, it's such a stressful, intense environment on set. And then these past four years have just been so nuts and with uh, this administration, thank God they're leaving, that we've just <laughs> had to try to find ways to just kind of unplug. And so that's interesting. Uh, when you were earlier on in your career, were you able to find that balance or is that something you had to develop later on? Because I know a lot of people when they're young, younger and hungry and they work themselves to the bone. Lots and, of cocaine. And, yeah. yeah. No, you know, um, it's interesting that you say that because I would go on this cycle where I would work ridiculous hours and just be working all the time. And then I would finish a job because I was mainly doing movies back then. And I would just get sick because I couldn't yeah. get sick when I was working. And then when I finish a show, okay, it's okay to get sick. And then I'd be sick in bed for like three days because I was so messed up. Yeah. And, um, it, it was not a healthy cycle, so I sort of had to find a little bit of a more healthy way of of working and living. And and one of the benefits, one of the few benefits of this COVID time is that we are working less hours, which means that we have a little more time to be with our families and just kind of uh, decompress a little bit. So that's been kind of good. So I do want to, I really want to travel. I mean, my son just uh, started college this fall. Now he's studying home at home, but... I had for the past bunch of years purposely not taken any shows out of town because it was just too hard traveling home on the weekends. But I had wanted to really start traveling again once he was in college. So I want to go, you know, working uh, on movies in other countries. I did this movie in Ireland and I worked in Budapest is one of the best ways to get to know another country because you're working with mm -hmm. people from that area who are in the arts field. So they're generally... Uh, interesting people, at least in my book. And it's just a great way to get to know uh, another part of the world. So I, I really want to do some more of that. I want to go to South Africa. I want to go to Europe and work and just want to work uh, in different places and maybe get back to doing movies just because they're, they're, I'll have a little more flexibility or limited series. We'll see. Well, you do yeah. yoga, so you should be able to get all the flexibility you need. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but speaking of that, are there any? Is there a particular dream project or something that you you know haven't done in your career yet that you would love to do aside from going back to traveling? I mean, like something that's like your ultimate goal. Do you have something like that in mind? Well, I'd I'd like to direct uh, a movie that's a historical drama because I, I love. I was a poli sci history major at school and um i i love history and i, I like working on period films because i always do research when i work on them and sort of find out about the time period and uh i come up with ideas little vignettes i can put in the background of the scenes and stuff that have to do with that time period and uh i would love to do a historical piece of my own just you know find they're they're generally more expensive I have this great script um, that my husband wrote called Buck Jackson that takes place in 1933 down south. So that's one of the ones I'd like to direct. There, you know, we've got uh -huh. some interest in that. And um, nice. knock on wood, hopefully that'll come up. I've got a couple projects in development as a director. And, um, you know, just generally. Well, if you ever need any score, you can always call uh, any of us because, you know, we're just sitting around. Well, no, not Siobhan. Siobhan's not yeah. sitting around. She'll get the call from us in a panic. We need somebody who's going to make us sound good. And then Corey and I will go back and forth on the phone a million times and I'll call Siobhan. Why didn't you read my mind? And then we'll send you the perfect score. And it will sound awesome. I promise you. I promise you you will not complain about how it's mixed. I'm sure I won't. And, and if you do, his name's Corey Peza. You can see him right there. There you go. There you go. I would love to. Let's hope. Let's do some. Let's do some. Knock on wood for everything because honestly, yeah. this year has to be better than last year. That's how I feel oh. about it. And you want to know what? Like, I hope that whatever's going on right now is just like literally that we're, we're taking out all the toxins. The death like, at the throws. end of the, the Biore ship in the morning <laughs> off Drew's nose. This is the end of 2020, and we're just like taking all of it and just wiping <laughs> just it off and then starting a whole new and forgetting about the fact that we've just completely set ourselves back 5,000 years. <laughs> God. Yeah. And My the idiocracy 
has become an allegory slash metaphor. That movie by the guy that did Beavis and Butthead. Oh, yeah. And Borat is a social allegory for what's going on. You know when Sasha Baron Cohen, uh, obviously a a devout, uh, uh, you know, method actor, and a movie like Idiocracy starring, obviously, the legendary Luke Wilson, you know, with the legendary Mike Judge, like, is the most accurate thing out there to describe the insanity that's going on that drew you need to write a different film you need to write a different film than anything that's going on right now because it fucking weirds me out yeah no i i agree that i i think there is going to be a big shift i i am i am so looking forward to not seeing that fucker on television <laughs> i'm looking forward to seeing you in vegas by paul's pool yes, and we're yes, all hanging yes. out in the sun I'm like there. normal people and we we could even share a drink i could hand it to cindy you could hand it to paul and like maybe it's even a joint i don't know we're, we're living on the edge now <laughs> there i'm there count me in <laughs> so you know we're coming up we, we got we got a few minutes left uh i've i've learned a lot I think I think we all have. So I really appreciate yeah. you being on with us. Um, oh my! Friend. And if things get back to normal, like what would be your next your next step? Like I think you you seem to be at the point now where you can probably be selective about your projects. Um, so like, what what's the call that you'd like to get? You know, next. You know, in the twenty twenty one twenty twenty two. Um. Well, I'd like one of my film projects to go. I'd like to be directing again. And um, I'm really excited about doing this music uh, series, Daisy Jones with Reese Witherspoon's mm-hmm. gang. So that, I think that's going to happen. That I, I mean, awesome. there's a bunch, you know, one of the things about my world, it's probably true with your world too, is you always have to have like a bunch of different uh, irons in the fire. You can't. That actually, sure. and I, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, actually had a question, I had a question written down uh, that I wanted to bring up in an industry like yours, where it's not a nine to five, you don't have, uh, you know, you're not getting uh, a, a direct deposit paycheck, you know, 52 <laughs> weeks a week. How do you plan out your, not only your short term time management, but your long term time management in the sense that, you know, your project ends in two months you have to make sure that in three months you have work, right? And you could be sick then. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, well, now I'm at the point in my career, and it hasn't always been this way, where I'm not really worried about, you know, I get phone sure. calls for work all the time, and, and I do have an agent, so I, mm-hmm. you know, I let my agent know I'm going to be finishing Grey's Anatomy beginning of April and, you know, start looking for me for something, and um so I just, a lot of it is just staying in people's memory banks because so many of us, sorry, my cat keeps jumping up. So, so many of us have so many different relationships and it's not necessarily that we wouldn't want it, have wanted to work with you, but we just forgot, oh, oh yeah, I forgot about her or whatever. Mm-hmm. So you just mm-hmm. kind of want to stay in people's memory banks. And I, I, I mean, I was selected uh, last year by the DGA to be a um, mentored uh, television director. Cause I was- Can you tell the, the gen pop out there what DGA stands for? Oh, the Directors Guild of America, which is... I mean, I knew that, but <laughs> it's one of those things that yeah, if you haven't been to downtown West Hollyweird, you may not know what the DGA is driving by to the, the pot dispensary down the street, you know? <laughs> Seeing yeah. all you elitist directors walking out with your Mercedes Benz and other German-made <laughs> things. Yes, yes, sure. fair enough. So, um, wait, what was I talking about? I so you were selected you were, by yeah, by the DGA. Yes, the yes. Directors was, Guild of America. But why was I talking about that? Because um, you were selected oh, by them. Oh, so I was trying to. It's a television directing mentorship. So I was. Uh, trying to get more involved and trying to direct in television. And, um, you know, a lot of times, uh, oh, so what some of the directors were saying was, you know, keep a contact list of people to stay in touch with, which I'm, I'm not really organized or I don't have the inclination to really want to do that. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna, like write down and check off people's names and make sure to stay in touch. But I do try to, uh, the people that I have close relationships with that I work with that I, that I want to keep working with, I try to stay in touch with them and, of course, social media is a big, uh, you know, I, which I, I kind of hate to be honest, but um, I try to update my. It's a my necessary article. evil. Yeah. Yeah. Amy'sgiftfilm.com is my website, Amy's Gift and Instagram and all that. 
Amy's Gift 2020. And, uh, you know, I update my directing reel and all that kind of stuff. So there's sort of a methodology to trying to stay in touch with people and trying to cultivate relationships. Because as we know, a lot of it's about relationships in both of our businesses, I think, in all of our businesses in the creative world. Sure. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thank you, Drew, because first off, we met in a ser very serendipitous like way um, with our good friend, well, my good friend, Paul Geary, who loves you. And I know that it'd be great. But I, I love the fact that you uh, years later, um, you first off, you've always been so kind to me in the sense that you've uh, demystified a lot of things about the industry. You've always said, hey, listen, if there's any time I can help you with anything, which by the way, there is, we'd love to score everything and do all the sound <laughs> and everything that you ever do ever all right, because all you're right. super no talented. This, this entire interview was this just entire set interview the ask. Is, is a giant big ask. We don't actually have a show. But, but we, we really just wanted to say thank you because a lot of the stuff that, like, look, I even said this with the DGA, but like you're talking about how things work. And you speak about it so knowingly that it's you almost forget that none of us see behind the curtain. And that's one of the things that we've actually, you said, what's the subtext of the show? It's kind of like removing the curtain. And, you know, like for a guy like Corey, Corey was like, I'm so excited for this interview because yeah. I get to learn what this person actually does and what what is their workflow? And it's like, you used to say it like, oh, well, this is, it's obviously yoga in the morning and then Biore strips and then telling Nicholson to fuck off by two and then holding Christopher walking up if he's too wasted by seven. You know, like, uh, it's very, like, very Corey, cool. feel free to reach out to me anytime. We can talk more. Thank you. Yeah. I, I might yeah. take you up on that. Like. No, you were, this was like super interesting for, and you're so authentic and so cool. And like, yeah, just, I mean, I just love listening to you talk about like all these stories. It's just so like, so cool. Even for me, yeah, to see behind the curtain of an industry that like still seems so far away from me, even wow. as a musician, you know, Well, I'm in awe of all three of you. You're incredible musicians and, and, uh, go on. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. I, I just, uh, uh, that guitar solo you did, Corey, and I was just, well, all of you, the solos each of you did on, on the Lost Symphony that I was listening to. It was I actually deliberately don't do any solos because everyone else is better, <laughs> but thank you. I wrote it all and produced uh, it, it's but I did it, I did it solo because there's Siobhan, well, and even, did, even the bass player, bit. even the bass player has a solo. You did a little bit, though. I saw a you little, damn it. A little bit. Yeah, this, I did some things. You got this life, this life, you got your I got a little, okay, yeah. that's fine. I have a little bit here and there. <laughs> You had other stuff to do. Yeah, other stuff. So we you know, we will definitely you. work together someday. We will we will definitely soon. We Starting in great. Vegas, I'm telling you, when this is all over, we gotta just you gotta fly out from LA and we'll go to Vegas um, and we're, we'll 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 hang out there. And I just want to uh, cl clarify something. I, I love Emmy Rossum, okay? <laughs> but Soleil Moon Fry, who I know was in one of your movies, Punky Brewster, she was my jam. And she's the original jam. Like, you know when you find the mixtape, like, from back in the day? You're like, oh, my God, I can't believe I roller skated to this. But you know, they're reviving that show. She's doing a, a remake. Is of she? Her. Well, not a remake. Uh, you know, what's it called? Is she I'm, passing the baton on to another punky? No, no, she. it's punky grown up. She's starring she's oh. the show. Oh, wow. Yeah, we're still friends. I still talk to her periodically. Well, nice. I, I, I'm engaged. But I, I heart, if there's one person I, I grew up going, oh my God, it was little, I love Punky Brewster. She was like my, uh, my childhood. And you're like, casually we're in, we're at uh, Park City, Utah. You're like, oh, I did this film with uh, this actress, Soleil Moon Fry. I'm like, I know who she is. <laughs> hey, She's what my is childhood. Your is your fiance is she a musician or I don't know anything about She's no, she's way more noble than that. She's um she's a nurse um on the front lines. Uh she goes and gives people medication that can't give themselves medication and then she goes and rever reviews other nurses um that don't know as much about things cuz she's smart. I I honestly am not high enough pay grade to understand exactly what she does other than it save lives and it's way better than what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> she lets me know all the time. I, I'm sure she's a saint if she's engaged to you. So. She has a thing that says, actually, uh, nurse is because she's a nurse because that's the only other word synonymous for angel. It's very true. <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, great anyway, talking to you. Uh, thank thank you so much. You so uh, much. What Drew, a pleasure. Just wanted to give a shout out to your website, DrewRosenberg.com. And uh, we definitely want to talk to you again. Thank you and so much. And if you need help, like updating your Instagram We'll, we'll 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 do it for you. Just give me the just give me the password. I'll I'll put some stuff up. It'll be fine. Two zero two zero. No, because you'll get riled up about I'm something and yeah. some angry. Yeah, two zero two zero dash d dot com twenty twenty. 
Thank you, as always, for tuning into this episode of 2020. Please visit 2020-d.com and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss out on future episodes. We have new shows every Sunday and Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern time. And this week's throwback clip is from episode 32 with the legendary radio host, John Garabedian. Check it out. So obviously you're someone that grew up loving and appreciating music. What was it about radio that drew you into that versus perhaps wanting to be a musician, you know, or somebody that's an actual like musical performer? What was it about radio that that attracted you? Well, you're asking a great question. I <laughs> thought about that. When I was a kid, I thought, well, be a singer. And I thought, no, because maybe if I'm lucky, I'll have three hits. If I'm lucky, and then I'll spend the rest of my life singing those three goddamn songs over and over and over. <laughs> I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to something about the Beatles, now on Evergreen, and wherever you get your podcasts.